The biggest hurdle between me and eating healthy, delicious meals for lunch is decision fatigue. Honestly, by the time lunchtime rolls around, I've already made like a thousand decisions from what my toddler should wear to how much I want to argue with her about how you have to brush your teeth in the morning, you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. No, I absolutely agree. And like I have taken to doing meal preps or like buying a bunch of ready to eat meals to like heat up quickly. And I recently tried Factor. And let me tell you, Factor is like 12,000 steps above and beyond any ready to meet eat meal I have ever tried before. That's right. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef curated, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started and get after your goals. I tried the two-minute meals where I could fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. And they also offer pancakes, smoothies, and more. There's a wide variety of easy options throughout the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Plus, there's no prep and no mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup required. Factor is also flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor is the perfect solution when you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. And you don't want to make any more decisions because you're exhausted, like me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash justbreakup50 and use code justbreakup50 to get 50% off. That's code justbreakup50 at factormeals.com slash justbreakup50 to get 50% off. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra DeMolder. And I'm Sam Blackwell. And this week on Head and Heart Work Conversations, we're talking to Kimone Felix. Kimone's pronouns are she, her. She is a poet, essayist, former political strategist, author of Build Yourself a Bow, a collection of poetry that was long listed for the 2019 National Book Awards in Poetry. She is also formerly the director of surrogates and strategic communications at Elizabeth Warren for president and is the author of the brand new literary nonfiction collection, Discalculia, a love story of epic miscalculation. Easily one of the best books I've read all year. Kamon, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Sierra. It's so good to be here with you. I love this podcast. I love the vibe. I'm super excited. Yeah. So very quick background. Like we met through the spoken word community, I don't know, a decade plus. Um, and I loved your your poetry work at that time, you know, still do. I just want to say this book blew me out of the water I am so thrilled to talk to you about it, like as a creative, as a fellow writer, and also just like as a person who has had these sort of relationships that unravel in a way that is so revealing. Um, so, you know, it's like your organs get reorganized after a, <laughs> a heartbreak like this. Um uh -huh. And so before we dive into this book and, and everything that brought it to life, can you first tell us like a little bit about your background, your professional history, like what led you to this book? Um, and like, also you worked with Elizabeth Warren, who I fucking love. So <laughs> yeah, tell us anything that you want about how you got here today. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Um, so Sierra, you remember that we met in the slam scene and I was so young. We were all so young. That yes, so young. Crazy. <laughs> we were on the SUNY Paul team and let me not age ourselves, but it was a bit ago. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, you can age uh -huh. me. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I think part of what I learned during that part of my literary career was just like the value of of honesty and the value of telling 
true stories that have real meaning. Um, we did plenty of metaphorizing and like making metaphors. You know, there's always a persona poem to be written or made. But we also learned, I think, that our own stories could be really powerful, especially yes. when we can take a step back from ourselves and see them kind of objectively. Yes. So I kind of left, well, <laughs> I left Slam for many reasons that I know Sierra <laughs> already yep, knows yep, 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 yep. her But uh-huh. um, part of what leaving meant too was being able to like get more immersed in poetry and in poetic histories and cultures that just teach you different kinds of like crafts and techniques and just show you different kinds of writing, right? Um, so I spent some time as a political strategist. I spent over a decade as a political strategist. Some time suggests, you know, like a semester in college. Yeah. But no. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> an entire decade. Um, I have seen Kimon on television. It's like that type of political strategist, you know? I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that like it happened, which is wild um mostly because i had like worked in schools i had worked in nonprofits and i was like wow so everybody everyone's trash understand and no one can get anything done yeah cool yeah you Let see how eat. the sausage is made and you <laughs> just you're like wow okay so maybe i need to like let me just unveil un- unveil the last layer of this let me let me see how government works yeah. Turns out it also <laughs> does not. <laughs> so then you're like, oh, maybe I can like help candidates make government work better. And we can do that through like good writing and just good communication strategies yes. in general, like knowing how to talk to people. And that's part of what led me to Elizabeth Warren. I sort of knew that the 2020 race would come and that I would have some opportunities to get on presidential campaigns. And I am, for better or worse, a person who can like not hide her displeasure. I just can't do it. So it's really important sure. that I work for people <laughs> that I can stomach because um, otherwise I won't have yes. a job. So I sort of going into 2020 was like there, I can only work from some for someone that I can actually tolerate. They're all going to be distinctly problematic because that's how this all works. Right. Um, but I read one of Elizabeth Warren's books when I was on my way back from a race in Chicago that I hated that I hated with my soul. Um, And I just, I was like, you make sense to me as a person who I should maybe trust with the economy. I don't know. I just, on a bare level, your sense makes sense to Mm -hmm. me. Um, And also just in in her demeanor, at least what it it presented to me, what I thought I saw and still do see is someone who is um, interested in being wrong and like interested in like mm-hmm. really engaging in the repercussions mm-hmm. of being wrong and like with learning some things and like using wrongness as a way forward, which is like more philosophical than it is political, right? Um, usually only people who like think for a living think that way. And I was like, oh, this merges my interests. Like, I like to think hard. And this person seems to also appreciate thinking mm. hard. So if nothing else, this could be a good opportunity. And, you know, whether it's through manifestation or just the way that politics works, they gave me a call. I called them back. I waited two months with no money <laughs> in a Brooklyn apartment, just like I can't get a job because I think I have a job, but I, my job's not started. So I'm going <laughs> to uh-huh. sit here. Um, and then I moved to Boston and it, it truly was some of the greatest, two of the greatest years of, of my professional life. And that was the same year that mm. uh, I got long listed for the National Book Awards and I had two of the greatest options in the world, which was to go to the award ceremony or be with my campaign and be with my team. And I chose to be with my campaign and be with my team because I was like, this campaign will never happen again. But if I'm lucky and if I like do my job right, then like maybe I will be long listed for something again. Um, And, you know, fingers crossed. But it was a good decision because I definitely didn't happen. win. Which it could I definitely knew was happen. happen. I, was, I was like, I'm not going to win this. <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> didn't win. And I was like, cool. So I like didn't feel like I had to like stress myself out and abandon my 
my family for this time for three days. So when we lost, um, I was sad and it was painful. We also lost at the, the campaign ended at the very beginning of the pandemic. So we like cleaned up, cleaned out our campaign office and we're like, okay, see you guys tomorrow. We'll go like dissociate and get drunk. It's fine. It'll be fine. And then the next day we couldn't leave our apartments and it was like, I am stuck in Boston. Oh my God. In an apartment by myself during a deadly pandemic. Yeah. Ooh. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and yeah, <laughs> kind of starting that period that I just, I just knew that like my next step was going to be transitioning back to just being a full-time writer. Um, and yeah, I think that's right. a really long answer to the very basic question you asked me, but. No. Well, I've always wanted to ask you about how you work with Warren. So thank you so much. Um, I remember you posting, I don't know if it was like a community meeting or a staff meeting or what the venue was, but I, Mm -hmm. I remember being like, oh shit, like seeing a picture of Warren, you, she like met with you and a group of other black women Mm -hmm. and you posted it on Twitter or something just being like, this is why I believe in her. Like she's here to learn from us, you know? And that's when I was already interested in her as an economist, but then Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so you're doing some sort of work (laughs) that Mm -hmm. I don't see in other candidates. Anyway, this is not an Elizabeth Warren interview. This is (laughs) much, this is about something that I actually, yeah, still, uh, uh, so excited to dive into this book um, with you. Um, quick question before Sam does his qu- next question. Did mm-hmm. How long was this book like brewing in you? Like how long did you, mm. how long did you carry this book before you birthed it? If that makes sense. <laughs> or like the, I, did you know you were going to write this book or yeah. It's crazy. It's actually so wild that you asked that because I was talking to one of my good friends, probably one of my oldest friends, and I was searching through our emails for something. And I found the first like page of dyscalculia that I sent her. And I was like, in a manic rage, I was like, I think I started something here and like sent it to her. And this was in like, <laughs> like 2015 or 2016. And yeah. it was like, it lived in my, in my, the notes of my phone for a really long time where like things would just happen Mm. or I would have like a thought or like a revelation and I would just like put it in my notes. Um, And so it was just, it started then like not very long after the breakup. And then I just kept kind of like playing at it through these different points in my life that followed the campaigns, the moving. And then maybe halfway through the campaign, I was talking to my agent and she'd seen it and and loved it, but we both were sort of like not really sure what it wanted to be or what it wanted to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I just like was in my apartment in Boston and had a thought and I was like, I think I know, I think I should, I think I should try to see if somebody would want to publish this. And it actually was part of a two book deal in which like it was not the star, you know? And there was no, it's not that the publishers didn't like it or, or <laughs> that they didn't love it. <laughs> yeah, it just was like not the thing they were focused on. Um, and admittedly, it looked wildly different then uh, than it did once they, once, once they actually received the final copy. Um, but the other book, uh, which is a book that I'm working on now, Let the Poets Govern, was supposed to come before it. And I don't know, I was just like, I think we should flip this. I think this one should come first. I think it's more done than I feel like it is. So they were fine with that. And then I rewrote it about 10 times in <laughs> the year that it was the year after we um, that we sold it. And one thing that always felt crazy is that it didn't feel like a long process, even though I rewrote it so many times. I was so like motivated by this book that it didn't feel like I wrote it 10 times um, because these were all just like different renditions of the same story. And it was just cool to see it kind of play out. 
Um, but yeah, I finally knew it was done about a year from to like right now, I guess. And I finished it and I, I knew it was done because I finished the last piece and then I cried and I was like, it's done. And it's like my body knew before mm. my brain do did where I just, yes. I stopped and I cried and I didn't rewrite it again after that. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So like five years. I, I love that. And I also just to sort of add on to what Sierra said, like loved this book. It was, um, it's fantastic, uh, in many different ways. And as somebody who is, um, a little bit skeptical of poetry, uh, because of all of the slams that Sierra made me go to, uh, <laughs> like reading so this sorry. book, I was like, Oh yeah, this is what good poetry feels like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I got chills reading fair, parts of it. That's a fair assessment. <laughs> Um, but I'm really curious cause this book is about like so many different things, right? It's about heartbreak. It is about, uh, math. Um, it's about poetry. It's about, um, childhood abuse. It's about mental illness. And I'm just curious, uh, what made you want to sort of talk about all of those sort of very different yet interconnected things and how did you find a way to do it in a way that feels so like razor focused, that feels like it, so sharp and and exactly what it needed to be? Thank you. First of all, I appreciate the close read and the honesty. Like I just, yeah, it was it was hard. So <laughs> I feel really grateful <laughs> to hear that you like appreciated it and received so much of what I was trying to do um I think when I was in the process of my breakup especially after I had gotten diagnosed um with bipolar I felt so kind of what's the word like kind of tickled like like it was kind of funny to me how benign people seem to think heartbreak was mm. um mm. and like how how banal they treated it or banal and I was also really like perturbed by it I didn't understand how people could see such a change in one person's life as relatively inconsequential or something they should just get over and it really started at first as like a an attempt to kind of like reconcile that confusion like almost like i wanted it to like make fun of how people thought about heartbreak mm. um cuz i i write i wrote this in the book but i remember telling my boss at the time that i had gone mm -hmm. through a breakup and that this was happening and she was like it's okay just like work harder and you'll feel better <laughs> i was like work through it mm -hmm. i was uh -huh. like whoa like first of all the way capitalism just spoke <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> seriously <laughs> um, like you thought you were saying something but that was literally just capitalism speaking for you <laughs> <laughs> so absurd to me that someone's actual dead-ass response to someone being like, I think I'm unwell because I just experienced a really big trauma was like, work harder. It'll feel mm. better. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. wild. <laughs> like what? And I realized then too, like how much of my life and how much of just the, the women that I know, the black women, the queer women that I know, how much of the response to their trauma has been that as well, has mm. been this like, well, if you work harder, well, if you try harder, you know, try harder to fit in, try harder to like not stand out, to not be so queer. And then, you know, you'll get over all the pain that you feel. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I guess that was where the desire really started. I was just so fucking mad that people kept treating me like it wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was really confused as to why it was such a big deal. Like, I also just didn't understand it. Sure. Um, so that's a big part of where it started. And then 
I think naturally, I think as writing allows you to do the more questions I was asking myself in the writing, the more answers I was getting. So every time I would ask myself, you know, like, mm. well, why why don't people understand that it's a big deal? Or like, why do why are people acting like I'm crazy or erratic when what's happening to me is mm. what's crazy and erratic? Um, mm. I felt every time I asked myself that question, I would I would get an answer naturally. And then I think part of what I enjoy about poetry and how my craft works is that like I try to answer every question with a question and the more questions you ask the more you end up with right you just get like further Mm -hmm. and further deeper into whatever you're trying to investigate by asking and so Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of how all of these different pieces of dyscalculia came together the mental health and bipolar stuff and the childhood trauma and the sort of like liminal cost of sexual assault across all of these different ages it all came together because in asking myself the question of like why doesn't this pain matter and why doesn't my pain matter and why doesn't like my capital M pain, you know, which is like the black pain and the queer pain and the neurodivergent pain. And like, why don't these sort of capital identities and their pains matter? And that's kind of how I, like I, the answer to the question was just all of these different elements, um, mm. which is also how it became a memoir and like not autofiction or not like memoir mm-hmm. in verse. Because when I realized that like my life as an example, not as an exception, but my life as an example was able to answer all of those questions, at least through the lens that I saw them, then like there was no other way to tell the story than to tell it, you know, in prose and to tell it with as much candidness as I could while like maintaining the urgency of poetry. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that is so spot spot on you accomplished that for sure mm-hmm. um so this this book quick side note the the title is dyscalculia no mm-hmm. dyscalculia here we go dyscalculia um i'm trying to put the accent on the cal and that's throwing me off anyway but that is a hard. learning disorder specific to math correct um correct and so we have this that's sort of a framework for you throughout the book to to you use that as a metaphor as a framework to lean back on throughout the book to tell a story the subtitle of the book is a love story of epic miscalculation and i think it's fair to say that one of the core pillars of this book is this huge heartbreak, this huge mm-hmm. unraveling from this relationship that you experienced, the, the the threads that led up to it from your childhood, the cracks in the facade, the unraveling and the aftermath. Um, and this book is structurally very, very unique. Um, it is, to describe it for our listeners, it's a series, it's not... We, it's very poetic, um, as Sam and I have both said, but it's not quite like a book in verse um, or a novel in verse. It's these sort of vignettes, um, longer and shorter from anywhere from a sentence to several pages. Um, but I, the w- one thing I just want to say before I ask the next question is that the storyline, the, the thread throughout is so connected, so mm-hmm. strong. Um, I didn't feel like I was jumping from a poem to a, to a different poem to a different poem like I have in other novels in verse um, or, mm-hmm. or co- you know, other novels by poets, I should say. Sure. Um, this is uh, it's. It reads so fluidly. Um, I was so impressed, and I truly enjoyed the structure of it. Um, I will. I'll read a quick um, excerpt from it, uh, and it it references um, a mathematic idea that you you refer back to a couple times that I want to ask you about. Um, you write. A fractal is a never-ending pattern, infinitely complex. It reproduces itself in perpetuity, in everything, hiding 
around and inside of us like Russian dolls, like a forest bordered by and stuffed full of with sisters of trees, a river that splits and meets itself in the mouth of another river, a simple equation processed over and over again, like a stamp, like your DNA, like your brain, like your lungs, like a mother. And you use this idea of fractals, this repeating pattern to sort of reference um, patterns in relationships, in desire, in yourself. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you yeah. use that metaphor? Yeah. Um, so uh, I really like math and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that my sort of like favorite application of math is to science and particularly to like non-physical sciences and metaphysical sciences and, you know, the astros and the likes. And so much of what you can understand about math and science at the same time without having to have two different sort of educations is that everything in our world is is a pattern um mm. and that patterns are reproduced in our physical bodies and in the physical world around us and that that mirroring is likely likely interacts with you know the external universe and the parts of the universe that we can't touch, right? That there are probably patterns there. Um, and I've been for years really interested in like the way that people and thinkers, particularly philosophers, how they have kind of like utilized that knowledge and like utilize that fact. Um, and in this particular re religion that, I highlight in the book um, that no longer exists, they were focused on numbers and on the patterns of numbers and how the patterns of numbers create patterns and sounds. Um, and so much of even now, like so much of understanding my diagnosis as a bipolar person and, and a person with ADHD and <laughs> whatever else is on the list is in seeing those how the patterns of my actions has have reproduced over time and reproduced mm. um sometimes the same outcomes but sometimes wildly different outcomes based mm. on you know di different variables whether it's you know my physical surroundings or you know who, the people who are in my life at a time or even like how my body might be working at a certain time um and it's sort of in asking myself all of those questions that brought me to all those answers, like almost all the answers were about patterns, right? Was it were about like, well, where have you seen this mm, before mm -hmm. in your life? And when mm. have you reacted this way before? And when did it when did you feel this particular pain before? And you know, if you've done psychotherapy, right? Like this is not a unique idea. That's what therapy is. It's asking you to associate what's happening in the present to whatever has happened in the past and finding patterns. Um, and so as a person who's not a therapist and as a person who's not a mathematician or a scientist, I needed <laughs> to, to ground that instinct and that, that, that like instinctual theory in something that has been researched and something that kind of like does have authority, which is science and math and, you know, the way that philosophy has worked with it. So that's why I brought these people and their voices and their ideas in um, because they, like, help me get at what I'm trying to get at without having to prove too much. It, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And to your point about, you know, where is where is this reaction coming from? Um, you write about what was stirred in you when you met this ex this this love of yours that we call X in the book. Mm -hmm. And when you when you met him, something something was stirred in you. Something was scared. Something was drawn <laughs> out into the light. Um, right. Can you tell me more about that experience and sort of like what 
what about his specific offering of love like rattled rattled yeah. something in you mm. yeah well you know the thing about being young is that like <laughs> you are like more um I felt like what my child self had been like longing for for a long time I met in this person right which yeah. is a, a yeah. person who like would be protective a person who like wanted to prioritize me and like who thought that I was important enough to you know to to be there right yes. and to want to love mm-hmm. and to want to love aggressively and loudly um and I was also like my self-esteem was really low frankly right like I Mm -hmm. like was not doing what I wanted to be doing. I felt really far from my goals and like really discouraged. And he was also in that place. So I didn't feel judged by him. I felt like we could like, you know, like get ourselves together together and like lift each other up. You know, the whole like we're going to be strong together and like, you know, stupid shit. Um, (laughs) but, (laughs) But I think... Also, because he was a musician and because he was a producer. And at that time, I was really interested in singing and I wanted to be a singer. Um, he felt like a like a pathway, like yes. towards a better part of myself or an idealized part of myself. Um, mm. And I think that's what was really exciting. Like, in some ways, like... In retrospect, I'm sure you both have experienced this in your in past relationships. I think so much of what I loved about him was pretty selfish, right? Mm. Like I loved a lot of I loved the way that he treated me and the way that he seemed mm-hmm. to feel about me and like what how it helped me validate myself. But mm. I sort of recognized this like a year into it that I, I was like, I'm not really like that into who he is right now. Like I'm into this idealized mm-hmm. version of him that could be possible, yep. but I'm only in control of half of that. Um, right. So yeah, I think it was like, just, I was really vulnerable and, you know, all of my dreams seemed to come true in this person, even though like they weren't, they were just like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right, y'all know that Sam and I record every single episode of Just Break Up virtually. So I literally see this beautiful person on Zoom like multiple times a week. And every time Sam pops up into Zoom, I comment on their outfit. And I swear, like 99% of the time, I'm like, oh my God, that outfit is so cute. Where did you get it? Sam says quince. You too can upgrade your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. Quince is here to transform the way you shop with a range of high quality items priced within reach. That's right. They have 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters for $50, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middle person and passes that saving on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Y'all have heard me talk about my leather bag that I use as both a laptop bag and a diaper bag. And I love it because (laughs) (laughs) honestly, it looks really cute in every single circumstance that I use it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash justbreakup for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com slash justbreakup to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash justbreakup. All right, Head & Heart workers, you know I'm all about tackling our money shame 
and becoming fiscally empowered, regardless of how much money we make or how much debt we have. I think it's such a crucial step in our own self-acceptance and empowerment. That's why I love that today's episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. With Rocket Money, you can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, you can just cancel it with a tap. You never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled unwanted subscriptions. And listen, we always talk to you about like conflict styles and open and honest communications, but honestly, save your energy and get Rocket Money to cancel those subscriptions for you. (laughs) Stop wasting money. You don't need to practice that. Yeah. (laughs) We don't need to do head and heart work with like customer service representatives. You know what I mean? Like just like... Use the middle person. (laughs) Just get Rocket Money in there to help you do what you need to do. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. That's rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. Rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. I wanted to actually talk with you about vulnerability because there's a lot in this book that is about sort of the double-edged sword that is vulnerability, right? Where it like opens us up to um, authentic connection and being able Mm -hmm. to like get into who we are and what we need. And also Mm -hmm. like people can use it, right? Or or in in bad ways, or it might, what I love, I'm actually going to read from the book where you say like, I was vulnerable in a way I had not known. And once vulnerable, I was less capable of playing the versions of myself that I had learned to play to get through. Under his Mm -hmm. love, I was a werewolf at the turn of the moon and I let the sun in Mm. me set to it. Which is like, first of all, great poetry, beautiful, loved it, (laughs) amazing line. Um, But also about like being vulnerable also asks us to let go of the things that we had told ourselves we're making us safe, right? It, it mm-hmm. says like the mask is not actually the thing that's keeping you safe and now you have to get rid of it. And that can be such a terrifying experience. So like, I'm curious how you are thinking about vulnerability now, especially since you're releasing this book to the world that is like the deepest parts of you to like people who are gonna read it and like post shit on Goodreads about it. Like, how are you thinking about your own vulnerability now <laughs> in this moment? Uh, as somebody who's publishing this book and as somebody who's gone through this whole epic sort of story about self-expression, self-exploration and leaning into vulnerability. That's a great question. Um, Thank you both uh, for making me face some real truths. Um, (laughs) That's what we do on this podcast. Sorry. (laughs) Man, vulnerability. So, okay, here's what I'll start with, right? I think that part of what I learned about that relationship and why I don't have like terribly negative feelings about it anymore is because I think that different forces in your life, whether you think of them as like ancestral or if you believe in God or just in sort of like, you know, the idea of physics, right? That things move along. Like they're this person in this relationship came into my life to ask me to undertake a different kind of vulnerability that was supposed to make me a different person. And it did, right? Like there is Mm -hmm. no way I would have found out that I was bipolar. There's no way that I would have found out if this thing didn't happen, if I didn't have that particular, you know, like groundbreaking moment where I had no choice, but to sort of like submit myself to this, like those things that information has made my life uh, safer because even though like my bipolar is not necessarily like gone or even like easily or well managed, what I do know is more about myself that lets me know like how I live and how I work and like how to love, right? Like what Mm -hmm. kind of love I really need. And I would not have known that 
without this experience. So I get, I know that vulnerability is necessary and and has a place. However, having to actually do this part <laughs> of the... <laughs> <laughs> However, yeah, right. I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> this fucking part, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't. It's fucked up too, because like, it's not my first published book, so I think I sort of assumed that it was going to feel similar, and like, I didn't know what to be prepared yeah. for. Um, but yeah, I, I will say this. I'm really glad that I quit my job uh, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could have um, been gone, going, been going through this process um, and trying to focus and all the things that are already hard to do because of my diagnosis. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't have done it and like stayed any more sane than I am. Um, but I'm trying to lean into that belief that something special or good will come out of this anxiety and just mm. the fear that people are going to like hold this work and like not be nice to it or like not take care of it. Or I don't know. I was just telling a friend at lunch actually that like, I'm trying to separate what my child self is yearning for versus mm-hmm. what I as an adult want for this book. And I'm like, your child sure. self wants validation. Yeah. Like it wants some <sighs> awards so that it feels like your story was like good and mattered. Oh but like God, your so adult real. self knows that that is not how any of this shit works. And if you set yourself <laughs> sure. up for that shit, like your, your child self's going to be let down anyway. So it's been requiring a lot of like very hard emotional work and resetting um and bringing a lot of things to the forefront like just realizing what my community is now made of versus what it was made of when we were younger and what support looks like now is like adult writers versus what it looked like when we were in college and it just yeah it's this this round of vulnerability is kicking my ass mm. yeah well, we thank you for it we thank mm-hmm. you know this is Thank you for even being vulnerable about the process of vulnerability that is involved in putting something out there in the world. Like I think, especially in this time of access where where we have not only access to so many great pieces of literature and art and music and et cetera, but we also have access to people, you know, we have access to you and your Goodreads and whatever. And I think our society is a little drunk on that access and mm-hmm. are forgetting the the great act of courage and vulnerability that it takes to put something out in the world so that other people then can feel comforted by the representation that you are providing in this book. One of the big things in the book and sort of what we've been talking about in this whole conversation too is about the fact that you were diagnosed with bipolar not necessarily as a result of this relationship, but like it was one of the mm-hmm. things that led you to a point where you sort of knew that you needed to to sort of seek help and found somebody who was able to accurately diagnose you. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, like this is a an important representation around like misdiagnosis or also like missed diagnosis. And mm-hmm. having been through this, what would you say to folks who may be sort of struggling with something similar where it's like my experiences aren't being believed or I'm looking around mm-hmm. me and I'm like, how are people experiencing heartbreak in a way that isn't totally destroying them. Right. And being like, what do I, there has to be something else here that I'm missing. Like, what would you say to folks who are experiencing something like that? That's a great question. Um, I think the first thing I would say is like, you should trust what you feel and what you know about like your own emotional regulation and your, and your ability to do so. Right. Like Mm. what I learned the most in this process of trying to answer the question of like, why is this driving me literally insane and 
other people, I see them like eat, eat some chocolate, drink a glass of wine, <laughs> and somehow the next day they're like out at the bar. Like what, somebody let me know how y'all do that. And what I learned from just like the mm-hmm. urgency of that question was that simply how urgent it felt meant that there was an answer out there for me that was unique to me, that it ha- that had to be, right? Because mm. other people, you know, many people see and think of heartbreak very similarly to each other, right? Where they're like, yeah, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call my friends and I'm going to call six of them and they're going to rally around me. And and I've heard so many people offer the same answer. And I'm like, wow, that like really worked for you. And you've never once questioned, like, why am I doing this wrong? Like, you've always felt like you did it right. And then the people Mm. that I would meet who also seemed to have a hard time or could at least relate to the urgency of my question were always people who were mentally ill. So I was like, okay, well, <laughs> there's a correlation sure. here. And I uh-huh. think I think that that's the power of like questioning and asking yourself questions and like not rushing to conclusions too quickly or letting other people rush you to conclusions. Like someone telling you that you're fine does not mean that you're fine. Like, do you feel, if you don't Mm. feel fine, then you're probably Mm. not fine. Um, And like asking yourself why you're not fine is a more useful like action than telling yourself that you have to be fine and you need to just get up and do it. Um, Mm. Which is the mistake I made and ultimately what made me, you know, what made that sort of pivotal moment happen. Um, And it's taken me a long, long time since to learn that, like, me not feeling okay and me not being okay, like, is valid. And if nothing else, if you are a person who's been misdiagnosed or misdiagnosed or just feels unsure, like, you deserve the clarity of mind to be able to be kind to yourself. Like, having the diagnosis itself allows me to say, like, oh, I'm not well. And I know this because someone gave me a, a framework that's that sort of defines all of my symptoms and they're all there. I see them. Mm-hmm. I know other people who have them. I know other people who have the same sort of like inabilities or, or abilities or struggles that I do. So that means that I'm allowed to say I'm not well and these are the accommodations I need. And if I had that mm. when I was a kid, when I was in school, like my education, I would have had a better educational experience. And now, like, that's the gift I want to give myself. So, yeah, I would just tell them, like, you know, you're not well or you at least know what you know. Like, go answer your questions and like mm. do that however you can with whoever you can. And when you get mm. the answer, like, then take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. I love mm. that. So last book question before we just ask our wrap-up questions but I got I literally was reading I was finishing this book on a couch on my on my couch with my wife was like reading across from me and I made an audible gasp when I turned the page and (laughs) got to the page that said when you're healed you tell the story differently (laughs) and then on the other page it said something I didn't write the other quote down but like once I loved a man so much it made me sick or something like that mm-hmm. I I had a physical reaction to this line when you're healed you tell the story differently mm-hmm. and I just you know there are so many staggering things about this book your you know razor sharp imagery uh how well you tie these timelines together. Also like the honesty and accountability you take in the book is unnerving at times, like in, in a good way, in like a humbling way, Um, how you tell the story of this love unraveling. And I just, if you could speak to any of that, particularly the quote, when you're healed, you tell the story differently because I think so much about the great heartbreaks of my life or the great repositionings of my world mm-hmm. and how I defined them then, whereas how I tell that story now, mm-hmm. I have a lot more grace for everyone 
involved. And I also have a lot more honesty, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you could Mm -hmm. speak to any of that. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, the reason why the personal accountability felt so important and like necessary to the story that I was trying to tell is because like, that is ultimately the thing that changes, right? Like what happened to me happened to me. Like those facts for the most part did not change, right? Not the ugly parts and not the good parts. But what changed was like how I saw myself in those moments and what I understood about who I was in those moments. And even just, even just recognizing that like, because I was vulnerable in a way that I hadn't been before, because this was effectively like my first real love, right? I was like 21, like this is in, especially in mental illness, but particularly bipolar disorder, 21, 22 is kind of when your disorder is, is said to peak, or at least when it's said to like really sort of like take over. And mm. if I knew what I, if I knew then what I know now, I'd have known that the minute he and I started to like spiral, I was going to spiral. And the minute that we broke up, especially even if none of the wild things that happened happened, I was definitely going to be in a, in a manic episode or a mixed episode. If I knew that, I probably wouldn't have, you know, that really pivotal moment wouldn't have happened, right? Would have protected myself from all of that, probably would have been in treatment. And what that allows me to to know both about my healing and about this the situation is that like, while it's true that I loved him because how could I not have and have had that experience? It's also true that like the part of me that loved him in that way, like does not exist anymore in part because like that Mm. person is Mm. in treatment and that person um, like understands more about how I worked then. Even just the fact of Sam, going back to the earlier conversation we were having about like how how I unmasked and kind of like came undone, right? Like so much of what vulnerability forces you to do or allows you to do is to um, see yourself most clearly, right? Um, You stop, I have actually a pretty funny anecdote really quickly that I'll throw in here. My now fiance, she, when we first started dating, uh, I love this story. She, She like would hear me on the phone or would like, come out with me to hang out with my friends. And she would be like, you just, like, I love everything about you. You're absolutely perfect. And also you do this thing where you perform all the time. Like, did you know that you did Mm. that? And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I knew that I, I know that I do that, but I didn't think anybody else knew that I did that. And she was like, no, I know that you do it and I'm exhausted for you. Mm. Like it makes me tired because you seem so tired. You should know that you don't have to do that. And I was like, wow. What the? F- How dare you? She was absolutely, completely, she was completely, completely right. And through that process of her saying that and me realizing that, like, oh, you're right, I don't have to perform, it turned out that, like, a bunch of that performing that I was doing similar to what was happening in my old relationship was masking. There would be times where I'm like in an episode or I'm just really agitated or physically not able to be there. And because I don't want anybody to think I'm mean or that I don't, I'm not paying attention to them or that I don't like them. I go into this like overly performative thing where I'm like super animated in the center of attention. Um, But that's not really what I want to do. So I think like, this is what vulnerability allows for. And like, this is what honesty and accountability allows for all in the same, when they all get put in the same bowl, right? Is that like, you get to see yourself through yourself and you get to kind of strip down some of those pieces that maybe aren't really you and that don't really belong to you. And by like being accountable to some of the things that happen in that relationship while not at all excusing any of the things that the other people may have done, it allows me to say, I don't think I'm that person anymore. This is how I love now. This is the kind of love I need now. And if I keep being accountable through that process, then like that love can never get stale, right? So I feel a lot more like stable Mm -hmm. and comfortable in the relationship I'm in now and a lot more like 
faithful to the future. Like I know that I can see it because the person who I was, who wouldn't able have been, I know who she was. I know why she did what she did. And I trust her now. So, yeah. Well, just congratulations in general. Um, Dyscalculia is masterful. It's, I felt, um, you know, how about this to our just breakup listeners? If you have ever had a breakup, um, if you've ever had a <laughs> moment in your life, um, an un that unraveled you and you had to, you had to take your, the pieces left over and figure out who you were. Um, you're going to love this book. And I love the compassion that you talk about that Kimon with, because that's, that's also the icing on the cake of this book for me is that there's accountability, but there's a ton of compassion and um, growth. And I just, I can't speak more. I can't speak highly enough of this book. Uh, Dyscalculia comes out February 14th. You can get it at your local bookstore um, at any time. You can um, pre-order it now if you're, st I think this episode comes out a couple days early, but yeah, it comes out on February 14th. Congratulations, Kimon. You have made a masterpiece. <laughs> you're welcome. Okay, so we're going to wrap up this interview with the same three questions that we ask all of our interviewees. First, what is a piece of relationship advice that you used to believe, but you no longer subscribe to? I used to believe that a, that difficulty is a sign of um, strength or longevity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I now know that mm, to be yep. fundamentally untrue. <laughs> It, it yeah. definitely does not have to be. <laughs> if you are on the struggle yeah. bus with somebody, get the fuck off. You don't have yes. to do that. It's not necessary. <laughs> That's perfect. That's real. That. That's real. All right. The next question that we ask folks is uh, every episode we give out a blind date to our listeners, which is something that we're really into now. We were really into something that we think that our audience is going to really love. So we're going to ask you to give the blind date for this episode. Okay. So I have two blind dates. This is probably really random, but whatever. That's fine. Um, I was just in Mexico City. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I was just in Mexico City um, and I truly saw some of the greatest visual art I've ever seen in my life. Um, I truly think that you can see a lot of this work just by going to Google, like check out some of the collections of the um, contemporary art museums and the local contemporary art museums in like Mexico City and Oaxaca and Guadalajara. Like if you are into visual art and just art at all, um, like Latin American art, contemporary Latin American art needs to not pass you by mm. right now. Mm. Um, and then I would say there's a book coming out soon called To the Realization of Perfect Help of Perfect Helplessness by Robin Cost Lewis. Um uh it'll have been out by the time this episode comes out. I have not read it yet, but it's a book I'm really, really looking forward to. Robin Cost Lewis is one of my favorite poets. Um mm. and like one of my favorite thinkers and archivists. And yeah, um, I'm just really into like the art bag right now so yeah oh and That's if you awesome. like my book um and you like fiction there is a book called cold enough for snow uh, which is by jessica jessica oh, oh, oh um i can't remember where she's from but um oh she's an australian writer and it's truly one of like the coolest coolest novels i've ever written it's like 100 pages just get into it. Sweet. Awesome. <laughs> Definitely will. All right. And lastly, where can people find you right now and how can they support you? Um, you can find me uh, probably in most of the places where you find other people. <laughs> um, <laughs> <my name>. uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'll leave Twitter. I probably won't. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we recorded this in know, November, yeah, friends. Really, really hard to make <laughs> Yeah. So who knows what's going to happen when this actually airs? <laughs> yeah. If I have by then, you can't hold me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, so at C-A-M-O-N-G-H-N-E is usually my tag name. And you can support me by pre-ordering this book. Yeah. Awesome. Wherever books are sold. 
All right, Kimon, thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled to have our paths cross in this way again. I am so honored to get to read this book a little bit early. I'm going to rave about it when it comes out um, and when we air this episode. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, friends, make sure to stay tuned for more Head and Heart Work conversations on our primary feed every other Thursday. And if all else fails, just break up. <laughs>